Chapter Seventeen of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Srigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter Seventeen. The result. Letty would never, perhaps, have come to herself in the cold of this world under the shifting tent of the winter night, but for an outcast mongrel dog, which, wandering masterless and hungry but not selfish along the road, came upon her where she lay, seemingly lifeless, and, recognizing with pity his neighbor in misfortune, began at once to give her. It was all he had that was separable, what help and healing might lie in a warm, honest tongue. Diligently he set himself to lick her face and hands. By slow degrees her misery returned, and she sat up. Rejoiced at his success, the dog kept dodging about her, catching a lick here and a lick there, wherever he saw a spot of bear within his reach. By slow degrees, next, the knowledge of herself joined on to the knowledge of her misery, and she knew who it was that was miserable. She threw her arms around the dog, laid her head on his, and wept. This relieved her a little. Weeping is good, even to such as Alberigo in an ice-pot of hell. But she was cold to the very marrow, almost too cold to feel it, and when she rose could scarcely put one foot before the other. Not once for all her misery did she imagine a return to Thornwick. Without a thought of whither, she moved on, unaware even that it was in the direction of the town. The dog, delighted to believe that he had raised up to himself a mistress, followed humbly at her heel, but always, when she stopped, as she did every few paces, ran round in front of her, and looked up in her face as much as to say, Here I am, mistress. Shall I lick again? If a dog could create, he would make masters and mistresses. Gladly would she then have fondled him, but feared the venture, for, it seemed, were she to stoop, she must fall flat on the road, and never rise more. Slowly the two went on, with motion scarce enough to keep the blood moving in their veins. Had she not been, for all her late depression, in fine health and strength, Letty could hardly have escaped death from the cold of that night. For many months after, some portion of every night she passed in dreaming over again this dreariest wandering and in her after-life people would be puzzled to think why Mrs. Helmer looked so angry when any one spoke as if the animals died outright. But although she never forgot this part of the terrible night, she never dreamed of any rescue from it. Memory could not join it on to the next part, for again she lost consciousness and could recall nothing between feeling the dog once more licking her face and finding herself in bed. When Beanie opened her kitchen door in the morning to let in the fresh air, she found seated on the step and leaning against the wall what she took first for a young woman asleep, and then for the dead body of one, for when she gave her a little shake, she fell sideways off the doorstep. Beanie's heart smote her, for during the last hours of her morning's sleep she had been disturbed by the howling of a dog, apparently in their own yard, but had paid no further attention to it than that of repeated mental objurgation. 
There stood the offender, looking up at her pitifully, ugly, disreputable, of breed unknown, one of the Calalais. When the girl fell down, he darted at her, licked her cold face for a moment, then stretching out a long, gaunt neck, uttered from the depth of his hide-bound frame the most melancholy appeal, not to Beanie, at whom he would not even look again, but to the open door. But when Beanie, in whom, as in most of us, curiosity had the start of service, stooped, and peering more closely into the face of the girl, recognized, though uncertainly, a known face, she too uttered a kind of howl, and straightway, raising Letty's head, drew her into the house. It is the mark of an imperfect humanity that personal knowledge should spur the sides of hospitable intent. What difference does our knowing or not knowing make to the fact of human need? The good Samaritan would never have been mentioned by the mouth of the true, had he been even an old acquaintance of the certain man. But it is thus we learn, and from loving this one and that, we come to love all at last, and then is our humanity complete. Letty moved not one frozen muscle, and Beanie, growing terrified, flew up the stair to her mistress. Mary sprang from her bed and hurried down. There on the kitchen floor, in front of the yet fireless grate, lay the body of Letty Lovell. A hideous dog was sitting on his haunches at her head. The moment she entered, again the animal stretched out a long, bony neck, and sent forth a howl that rang penetrative through the house. It sounded in Mary's ears like the cry of the whole animal creation over the absence of their maker. They raised her and carried her to Mary's room. There they laid her in the still warm bed, and proceeded to use all possible means for the restoration of heat and the renewal of circulation. Here I am sorry to have to mention that Beanie, returning unsuccessful from their first efforts to the kitchen to get hot water, and finding the dog sitting there motionless, with his face turned toward the door by which they had carried Letty out, peevish with disappointment and dread, drove him from the kitchen and from the court into the street where that same day he was seen wildly running with a pan at his tail, and the next was found lying dead in a bit of waste ground among stones and shards. God rest all such. But as far as Letty was concerned, happily Beanie was not an old woman for nothing. With a woman's sympathy, Mary hesitated to run for the doctor, who could tell what might be involved in so strange an event. If they could but bring her to first and learn something to guide them, she pushed delay to the very verge of danger, but soon after, thanks to Beanie's persistence, indications of success appeared, and Letty began to breathe. It was then resolved between the nurses that, for the present, they would keep the affair to themselves, a conclusion affording much satisfaction to Beanie, in the consciousness that therein she had the better of the Turnbulls, against whom she cherished an ever-renewed indignation. But when Mary set herself at length to find out from Letty what had happened, without which she could not tell what to do next, she found her mind so far gone that she understood nothing said to her, or, at least, could return no rational response, although occasionally an individual word would seem to influence the current of her ideas. She kept murmuring, almost inarticulately, but, to Mary's uneasiness, 
every now and then plainly uttered the name Tom. What was she to make of it? In terror, lest she should betray her, she must yet do something. Matters could not have gone wrong so far that nothing could be done to set them at least a little straight. If only she knew what, a single false step might do no end of mischief. She must see Tom Helmer. Without betraying Letty, she might get from him some enlightenment. She knew his open nature, had a better opinion of him than many had, and was a little nearer the right of him. The doctor must be called, but she would, if possible, see Tom first. It was not more than half an hour's walk to Warrender, and she set out in haste. She must get back before George Turnbull came to open the shop. When she got near enough to see Mr. Wardour's face, she read in it at once that he was there from the same cause as herself, but there was no good omen to be drawn from its expression. She read there not only keen anxiety and bitter disappointment, but lowering anger, nor was that absent which she felt to be distrust of herself. The sole acknowledgment he made of her approach was to withdraw his foot from the stirrup and stand waiting. "'You know something,' he said, looking cold and hard in her face. "'About what?' returned Mary, recovering herself. She was careful for Letty's sake to feel her way. "'I hope to goodness,' returned Godfrey, almost fiercely, yet with a dash of rude indifference, "'you are not concerned in this business.' He was about to use a bad adjective, but suppressed it. "'I am concerned in it,' said Mary, with perfect quietness. "'You knew what was going on?' cried Wardour. "'You knew that fellow there came prowling about Thornwick, like a fox about a hen-roost? By heaven, if I had but suspected it—' "'No, Mr. Wardour,' interrupted Mary, already catching a glimpse of light. "'I knew nothing of that. Then what do you mean by saying you are concerned in the matter?' Mary thought he was behaving so unlike himself that a shock might be of service. "'Only this,' she answered, "'that Letty is now lying in my room. Whether dead or alive, I am in doubt. She must have spent the night in the open air, and that without cloak or bonnet.' "'Good God!' cried Godfrey. "'And you could leave her like that?' "'She is attended to,' replied Mary, with dignity. "'There are worse evils to be warded than death, else I should not be here.' There are hard judgments and evil tongues. Will you come and see her, Mr. Wardour? No, answered Godfrey, gruffly. Shall I send a note to Mrs. Wardour, then? I will tell her myself. What would you have me do about her? I have no concern in the matter, but I suppose you had better send for a doctor. Talk to that fellow there, he added, pointing with his whip toward the cottage, and again putting his foot in the stirrup. Tell him he has brought her to disgrace. I don't believe it, interrupted Mary, her face flushing with indignant shame. But Godfrey went on without heeding her. And get him to marry her offhand if you can, for by God he shall marry her, or I will kill him. He spoke, looking round at her over his shoulder, a scowl on his face, his foot in the stirrup, one hand twisted in the mane of his horse, and the other with the whip stretched out as if threatening the universe. Mary stood white but calm and made no answer. He swung himself into the saddle and rode away. She turned to the gate. 
From behind the shrubbery, Tom had heard all that passed between them, and, meeting her as she entered, led the way to a sidewalk, unseen from the house. "'Oh, Miss Marston, what is to be done?' he said. "'This is a terrible business, but I am so glad you have got her. Poor girl, I heard all you said to that brute, Wardour. Thank you, thank you a thousand times for taking her part. Indeed, you spoke but the truth for her. Let me tell you all I know.' He had not much to tell, however, beyond what Mary knew already. "'She keeps calling out for you, Mr. Helmer,' she said, when he had ended. "'I will go with you. Come, come,' he answered. "'You will leave a message for your mother?' "'Never mind my mother. She is good at finding out for herself.' "'She ought to be told,' said Mary. "'But I can't stop to argue it with you. Certainly your first duty is to Letty now.' "'Oh, if people only wouldn't hide things!' "'Come along,' cried Tom, hurrying before her. "'I will soon set everything right.' "'How shall we manage with the doctor?' said Mary, as they went. "'We cannot do without him, for I am sure she is in danger.' "'Oh, no,' said Tom. "'She will be all right when she sees me. "'But we will take the doctor on our way and prepare him.' "'When they came to the doctor's house, Mary walked on, and Tom told the doctor he had met Miss Marston on her way to him, and had come instead. She wanted to let him know that Miss Lovell had come to her quite unexpected that morning, that she was delirious, and had apparently wandered from home under an attack of brain fever, or something of the sort. End of chapter 17